You can go ahead and be seated. Now, I, I'm a pastor, so I wouldn't know this personally, but I hear sometimes in between people, there's conflict. I mean, is that true? Like, has that happened before? Maybe you've heard of it. Yes, it's happened before. People acting like you don't know what you're, I'm talking about. Now, I, I can prove it, especially for the married folk, because you'll hear from their laughters the guilt of the truth that we recognize we have some issues to work through with dealing with other people, even when we find out someone else in our household has been squeezing the toothpaste wrong. And the people who squeeze the toothpaste right are the only ones who understand this, that it goes from the back to the front and never the middle, right? Like, you see, people are smacking each other in here. Like, we, we understand, like, con conflict happens. It's not that, like, some of you, one person in your house is usually the person who understands the correct setting for the thermostat, and everyone else is wrong. And we've experienced con some conflict over this. Yeah, there's some, I'm not starting to start a fight right now. Save, sit, let the Lord work that out a little bit later, okay? All right, this is just talking to you, not to the person next to you. Maybe you've had someone, and you guys watch the first five shows on Netflix together, and then you go back to watch the sixth one with them, and you see they've watched the next two already. Yeah, it's funny. That's a bigger conflict than the other two, isn't it? Netflix cheating. It's a thing, and it starts fights in our, in our culture today. Um, leftover food is another one. Someone ate your leftovers from the restaurant. Or maybe at the restaurant, you asked, do you want fries? And they said no. And all of a sudden, their hands are on your fries. And you're like, what happened to no? And, and the fight starts. There's lots of different ways that conflict starts. But the important thing for us as believers is how do we navigate conflicts? Because it's inevitable. It's going to happen. As long as you're living, you're going to find something to fight about with someone else. But as Christians, I feel like we should approach conflict a little bit differently than what we see the rest of the world doing. And as it's played out, on social media in front of us, as conflict has played out on the news in front of us, I think we've all looked at it and been like, well, that's a mess that I don't want to be a part of. But yet we find ourselves a part of it again and again and again. We get pulled into it. We get drawn into it. And that's what I want to, I want to talk to you about the way that we are, as Christians are supposed to address conflict. And I'm going to go to a, quite a few different passages today because the scope of Scripture is important when it talks about managing conflict in the way that we have just learned from observation, the way that we've just learned from our culture about the way to approach conflict, it has so many disastrous results if we follow their patterns. And so there's a different pattern that we have to follow. And so we're going to look at a couple different passages that just give us clear direction about it. And we're going to start in our main passage. If you have your Bible with you today, you can open up to James chapter 4, starting at verse 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, and we'll, of course, project the, the words up on the screen as we go here. And James writes here and he says, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Now, as this passage starts off and it says, what causes quarrels among you, the desires within you? Now, James, I think you, like, if I was talking with James, I'd be like, I think you missaid that. I think you might mean, like, the evil desires inside of them. Like, like them, because it's them that's the problem, right? It's never us. Like he's talking to the other people that are causing problems, but he's actually saying the conflict that you have with someone else, the real root issue of what's causing it isn't 
isn't from them really, it's from inside of you. Because even when someone starts something up and they start an argument, you know within yourself that if you were really as emotionally healthy as you could be, if you were as well rested, if you had already eaten a meal that day, if you had other things together, you probably could have just overlooked the issue that they started, but you didn't because pride. You didn't because of ego. You didn't because they should know where you stand in the household and the pecking order and the place at work and that you're above them and they should never talk to you that way. And so conflicts and quarrels that go on, it really does take two parties to keep a quarrel going. And one of the main issues that we see of why it happens so much is not because of what's inside of someone else, but because of the evil desires that are inside of us. Our own need to inflate ourselves is really at the center of the battles that we keep having to fight. The problems that, that start, they're really problems with the heart. And today, as we go through this message, I'm going to give you just kind of five tools, five things to think about when it comes to dealing with other people and dealing with conflict. But the starting point, the foundation, the thing that you have to claim responsibility for if you really want to navigate conflict better is that the issue with the conflict is not exterior to you. It's interior. Conflicts, quarrels, fights, arguments, they all make their way back to what's happening in your heart, not just the other person who's squeezing the toothpaste wrong. All right? And so as we talk about how to deal with people in conflict, this isn't a message about how to fix someone else. This is a message about how to fix yourself. Because God has given you authority over your decision-making. God has given you responsibility for the choices that you make and accountability for it. You're not accountable for their decisions. You're accountable for yours. And so we're going to navigate who we are, um, not who someone else is. Um, this issue of not getting what we want, the failed expectations, this, the, the idea of do not covet, it goes all the way back, doesn't it? But it's still starting fights today. And before we go too much further into this message, I also want to just focus on verse 3 in this first second when it says, and even when you ask, you don't get, when you're, you're not getting things because you're not asking God. And even when you ask, you're not getting what you want because you're asking with wrong motives. When we pray to God about a conflict, I want you to think about what should that prayer look like? If we're navigating conflict, if we're navigating the dreams and the desires that God has placed on our heart, the dreams that we have that maybe God needs to move out of our life, what do those prayers to God look like? Because James says if it's just focused on your own pleasure, your own comfort, then you're praying out of the wrong motives. And you might say, well, if it's regarding conflict with someone else and I'm supposed to pray for them, that's difficult because I don't want good things for them. And I'll tell you, every pastor who ever brings in a, a married couple for marriage counseling because there's problems going on, uh, this is a trick of the trade. So I'm, I'm warning you, this will happen if you guys come to talk to me or talk to any other pastor, they're going to pull this on you. Before they start, they're going to say, okay, but before we start, I want you to pray for her and I want you to pray for him. Because there's this truth, but when we begin to bring something to God, and the prayer might start off like, dear God, like, I, I ask that you would just heal this wicked and terrible woman. <laughs> I, I pray that you would help her to speak and just make some sense. Like, it might start there in the prayer, but even when it starts there, there's just this truth that, that where it ends is differently. 
Because as messed up as your perspective is of the other person, when you begin to pray to God and allow him to work in a situation, it's like it, it, it moves from, you know, all these things are her fault to, and, and God, and if I've messed up and if I haven't done, then just, just help me, and we, we know that you're in control. And, and it lands somewhere else. It's, it, it's like little kids. When dad steps into the room, the kids act differently. They act better. And when it comes to the things that you're dreaming about, the conflicts that you're trying to heal, prayer is so crucially important as a part of the equation for making things better because it awakens you to the reality that it's not just you and them. God is involved in this as well. And he is able to work, and he will work. But I think one of the first places that he works is he works on fixing our heart. Because until we, we say, okay, I need to handle what is inside of me with this conflict, I can't, I can't even think about their actions. I've got to start with what's going on here. And so we're going to look through scripture about navigating quarrels and conflicts. And I'm going to give you just five things about how to deal with difficult people. Uh, And I want to alert you uh, to to the truth. You're a difficult person too. And so this isn't just about how to deal with someone else. This is about how to deal with you. And the very first one is overlooking the offense. Overlooking the offense. This is something that we see through scripture, something that Christians are called to do. And today in our culture, so much of our culture has such thin skin and hard hearts. It's like, if, if I wish Liz a happy birthday because I know her birthday is coming up, it's like, well, what about my birthday? My birthday is in February. Isn't my birthday important? And it's this issue that it's like we can barely say anything without someone getting offended about it. And we have adopted this and we see this behavior in the church and we feel justified because we see it around us. And I want to tell you that scripture doesn't teach us to be easily offended. It teaches us to easily overlook offense. And of course, there's going to be more conflict. Of course, there's going to be more problems. Of course, there's going to be more church splits. Of course, there's going to be more people who feel like they can't stay planted in a church if we all hold to this thing where we're all walking on eggshells and once again, don't be taking this and applying this to your friend on Facebook. Apply this to yourself. We shouldn't be easily offended. Proverbs 12, 16 says it this way, and, and I want to and we'll put this up on the um, screen as I read it. A fool is quick-tempered, but a wise person stays calm when insulted. Now look, this isn't just talking about when someone accidentally insults you, when someone accidentally offends you. It's saying when someone insults you, the calling of a wise person is to stay calm. Proverbs 19.11 says it this way. It says, sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. This is a peacemaker. This is the type of person that we're called to be. Someone who overlooks offenses. That doesn't see a mistake in one person's life at one point in their history and give up on them. And thank God, praise God that he doesn't treat us that way. Praise God that he forgives time and time again that though he has plenty of justification and reason to give up on any one of us because of our sins, he is merciful and gracious. In the life of Abraham Lincoln, uh, just history lesson as we go here, he was actually a lawyer before he was a president. And he had this interesting interaction with with a a man named Edward, and I want to make sure I get his last name right, Stanton. Edward Stanton. They were both lawyers, they were contemporaries, and 
Abraham Lincoln was assigned to a case that was an important case that was going to happen in Chicago, and then the case got reassigned to Cincinnati, Ohio. And he was hired for it. He was doing the work on the case. And when they reassigned it, they changed the lawyers, and they didn't tell him. And he continued to work on it and work on it day and night, preparing for this big case. And then he went to Cincinnati for the case and found out that Edwin Stanton was now in charge of it. And as Edwin saw Abraham Lincoln walking up, he referred to him with a word that I'm not allowed to use from the pulpit and, and an ape and said, what is this long-armed doing here? What long-armed man doing here? What, it, what good is he for? And though Abraham Lincoln was there for the whole case, Edwin wouldn't let him eat with the legal team. He didn't want to see any of the paperwork that Abraham Lincoln had done over the course of the last months and treated him with complete contempt. Abraham Lincoln would later talk about the experience and said, I don't think I can ever go back to that city because of how bad the memories of what happened to me are there. I mean, he was wounded. He was hurt by someone. The next time the two got to meet, Abraham Lincoln was president. What's up now, Edwin? <laughs> yeah, you'd think, like, <laughs> I got a legal case for you. Like, you're going overseas. You're going to Antarctica. You're going on a, a sailboat trip. Like, that's what we would do probably, right? But, but, you know, he actually um, assigned him a position in his cabinet. I mean, he saw something in him that said, like, I know that you wronged me, but I'm not going to treat you in that same way. And I don't know how much of this um, Abraham Lincoln knew, but the history books will tell us this, and I'm going to make sure I read them to put them in the right order. Stanton's family life was recently shattered before that interaction with Abraham Lincoln. His daughter Lucy died of an attack of scarlet fever. His beloved wife died at the age of 29. He buried her in her wedding dress and for months roamed the house sobbing and calling her name. To keep her memory alive for his son, he wrote hundreds of pages describing their romance. His younger brother had recently, because of mental illness, taken his life. His other partner in the legal firm was sick leading up to the trial, and so he went without sleep to prepare for the trial. And all of those things were factors in how he treated Abraham Lincoln in those days. Could you understand why he acted rude and inappropriate? Yes. But if you were to judge him just based on those actions, without knowing the backstory, it would probably be hard to overlook the offense. But once you know all those things, it's very easy to say, okay, I can understand. You don't know the story. You don't. The person who you're upset at, the person that you're having conflict with at work, you don't know nearly as much of the story as you think you do. But even if you did, in view of God's mercy to you, I think in church it's easy to say, shouldn't we overlook the offense? Shouldn't we be willing to forgive? But a Christian, I think th th this is the calling. It, it, it starts there to overlook it, but we're not just called to ig ignore what happened, but we're called to deal with it in a way where we extend forgiveness. We're called not to just ignore them and not just bring abuse, but we're actually called to do something more for them. And Scripture is very clear that when someone has hurt us, one of the things that we're called to do for them, and this is number two, uh, you know, the, the, the very... First thing, we're going to overlook the offense. The, offense. the second thing, we're going to pray for them. Now, not to pray for them like, I'm going to, I'm going to pray, you know, Lord, please provide sand spurs in their bed sheets. Like, like, not that. Like, Lord, just fix them. Like, literally, Lord, bless them. 
Lord, would your favor be on them? Jesus took it pretty far in the way that he said we should pray for people in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. He actually says to pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he's speaking of people who would actually want to do physical harm in most of our conflicts. Do not go that far. And the calling is to prayer. And it brings us back to that truth that when we're having conflict with someone and we bring their name into the presence of God, I think it helps us to get a little bit more of God's heart for that person. To see them through God's eyes just a little bit more. And there's a thing in us that says, you know, but God, if I pray for them, you might actually bless them. Yeah, he might. And that's okay. They might act better, and that might improve your life, but it's really, once again, not about you. But we have a calling to help and encourage other people. And prayer to others, it doesn't always change them, but it does always change you. It does always change your perspective. It does always help you navigate what's happening with them better. And because of Colossians 3.13, we also have that calling to forgive as Christ forgave us. And so going to God for them in prayer it is so incredibly important. And, that, and this brings us into the third tool that we have in, in navigating times of difficult people is that we need to forgive them. Now listen, forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Reconciliation involves two parties, but forgiveness is something that you begin to work on, out on your own where you say, I am going to begin to release responsibility for this, to allow God the space to heal the pain that was caused by this. We are called to forgive. It's deciding not to hold the offense against them anymore. And listen, this does not eliminate the truth that they hurt you. This does not eliminate that from existence, but it does mean I'm going to begin to take this poison outside of me. I've used the phrase before, and I'm sure you've heard it, that, that holding on to bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping it kills the other person. Holding on to offenses is like that. You're going to heal better when you forgive them. Forgiving someone else is going to be one of the best things that you can do for your own health, for your own family, for your own walk with God. A, a key sign for someone who is developing in their, their faith it is growing. It is They've realized, okay, the person who hurt me and sent my life into a tailspin, when they forgive that person, when they allow God to begin to heal, they begin to stop blaming someone else for their life's conditions. This is part of forgiveness. Like The responsibility is no longer there. I understand now Like God has me. God is in control. That I have choices about my life moving forward. And I can move forward. I am not forget forever chained up because of them. I've removed the chain by forgiving them. And God is going to lead me through this. I mean, the whole victimhood mentality gets attacked by Scripture as you study it. You are not just going to be a victim to life's circumstances because God is far too powerful and far too capable of getting you out of those circumstances. If we stay somewhere for a long period of time, it's usually because we're refusing to deal with what has happened in a biblical way. Because when we deal with it, God breaks those chains. God removes us from those situations. He gives us the power to grow out of them. I mean, if anyone had a right to claim victimhood status, I'd probably say it would be the author here, James, the, the you know, half-brother of Jesus. If you want to grow up in a difficult situation, you know, why can't you be more like your brother, James? 
my brother's Jesus. Like, like he grows up, anytime he does anything wrong, there's Jesus sitting there looking at him do it. Like, like, how could you possibly be successful when someone else is so much more successful than you watching you your whole entire life? Like, he could have claimed victimhood status. It's also one of the, I think, best proofs for, for the deity, for, for who Christ is being, like, who we say he is. I mean, how much would it take for a sibling to convince you that they're the son of God? Like, that would have to be pretty convincing. I mean, and he didn't believe, as we see in Scripture and the Gospels, he actually didn't believe in Jesus early in the ministry. But as they saw the miracles and the resurrection, they came back around to, to where James became a leader in the church. But he didn't play the victim card. And, and in fact, he teaches pretty straightforwardly about how we're supposed to grow through conflict and deal with these things. The book of James is an incredibly practical book. It's a great place for you to start reading. And, and you know, just back to forgiveness and dealing with things, uh, forgiving someone, just one last note on that, it, it doesn't change the past, like I said, but it definitely will change your future. And if when I begin to talk about forgiveness and conflict and there is a person, there is a name, there's a situation that pops right up, I want to tell you, you need to begin to work with God to let that go, to trust it into his hands for resolution, for vengeance, for for making things right, to release that person of the responsibility so that you can be released of that pain. Forgiveness is one of the things that we have to do. Number four, and this one, it's going to get more challenging as we go, bless them. Not just pray for them, but to bless them. It's amazing to me how accepted it has become in the church to just throw insults at people in political leadership Uh, who are in the Hollywood light, um, people on Twitter and social media, local politicians, this shouldn't be coming from the church. Um, Someone in our church shared uh, this quote from someone, and it just so stuck with me that I I wanted to share it with you. It it said, sheep is a strange insult for Christians to use, because I have seen Christians throw that at other people. But also, insults are a strange thing for Christians to use. It's one thing to call people sheep for following a leader. I mean, we, we are called to be sheep, and we know who our shepherd is, and, and he's a good shepherd. He's a trustworthy shepherd. Right. But, but beyond that, uh, one of the things that your shepherd ha- has told you to do is to be very careful with your words. Your shepherd has told you you will be judged for every idle word. Your shepherd has, has said from the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. And so, church, what have we been speaking to our city? I want, I want you to wrestle with that. But Paul, you, you mean I can't be critical? Well, <laughs> you, you can be constructively critical, but the way that you say something matters. You know that. Life has taught you that. And I just want to call you up, church. I don't want, to, I don't want you to feel beat down, but I want you to feel called up that the way that we speak matters. The way that we speak to our children matters so significantly. The way that you speak to your spouse matters so significantly. The way that our city hears us speak matters so significantly. And so when we speak to other people, even when they've harmed us, our calling is to bless them. 1 Peter chapter 3 says it this way, and there is not any lack of clarity in this. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. I'm going to pause and rewind because I just I want to make sure we hear that right. 
Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. Now, if you had, keep that up there for just a minute, because I want that to soak in for us. If you didn't know that you had any calling, and I believe that God has very specific callings for you in your workplaces, in your schools, in your households, where God has you, he has specific callings. But this is apparently a general calling that applies to every single Christian, because it's clearly written here in scripture that when someone insults you, you are not to insult them back. But what God has called you to do is to be a blessing to give them a blessing. A blessing, that's a churchy word. It means to speak well of. That's the most literal translation. It means to speak well of them. So someone speaks poorly of you, what you return to them is that you speak well of them. Look, dude, if they want to play in the toilet, it doesn't mean you need to play with them. That's not where your hands need to be. That's not the things that your mouth needs to be speaking. We're called to live differently. You have a calling on you, and that is to be a blessing. And just within this message, many things, um, I, I often give challenges that some of you guys take up and some of you guys don't, and that's not okay, but the challenge takers in the room, the ones who are about to be challenge takers, I say just speak a blessing every day this week to someone. Just, just a word of prayer, just a word of hope, to someone else, someone in your family, you're like, oh, I'm afraid to do that. You can, you can text a blessing to me every day of the week. That's okay. I'll take it. I will receive it. Um, if you don't know where to start outside of the church. But when you find an, an opportunity, when someone's heart is hurting, pray for them and ask for a blessing. And it might be scary to step into, but I'm going to tell you, of times where we've prayed for our waitresses and our waiters at times, It's amazing how God will use that. It's amazing how God will actually use his church stepping out and doing something that they've been told to do. It's amazing how scripture actually works when you apply it. It's amazing how lives transform when the church does what the church is supposed to do. It's not amazing. It's not surprising. No, it is amazing. It's just not surprising, right? It's not surprising when God does what he says that he will do. And it's not surprising when we see those blessings happen as we pray and as we ask with proper motives. Because isn't that a proper motive? God, this person is hurting. Would you bless them? And your heavenly father looks and says, yes, I want to work. And I want them to see that this isn't just random chance happening, but this is their heavenly father calling out to them and calling them back home. Okay, that's good when someone's hurting, but what about when they've hurt you? That's what this is really talking about. Blessing the person that has hurt you. Challenge level deeper. Be thinking about that. The fifth tool that I want to throw at you guys is to do good to them to actually do something, to actually give them something, to actually help them. There's another pastor I know, and he pastors a large congregation, and when your congregation grows or is young, then then other pastors generally love you, welcoming you, you're a little kid brother, they like that, but when you outgrow them, then it starts, your, your growth is because, you know, you must be false gospel, there must be something wrong with you, like it's intimidating, and that's weird, but it happens amongst even pastors, and so sometimes pastors will actually talk bad about each other, which I love the churches in our city, like this is not my heart, this is not, not my beat, but it happens, and so I've learned from the, this pastor who's seen great success, he said, this is how I navigate that, when I hear that someone else has been talking bad about me, what I do is I get my checkbook out, 
and I write them a check, and I mail it to them. I haven't got any check yet. I've got to start talking more about him specifically. Um, I'll work on that. I'll post something later, I guess. Uh, just ignore that post. No. Um, he, he says, because this is the thing. Even when they've hurt me, if I'm invested in them, I want them to succeed. He's like, I trick my mind. Like, they might be hating on me, but because I've given to them, I want to see them be successful now. Once I do good for them, it changes my heart. Sometimes your actions have to lead your heart. You know that, right? You, you know, sometimes your heart may not be in fixing something, but you know in your mind, this is what God wants me to do. And even though I don't feel like it, if I actually just start my hands at work, my heart will catch up. And so when someone hurts you, when someone insults you, do good. Do good to them. Do something that you don't have to do. Take up a responsibility that was yours. And you know, you know, just it's common sense. Okay, if I, if I do things like that, the person's probably going to start to change their opinion. But you know what? It's not about necessarily even changing their opinion. It's about doing what your Heavenly Father has called you to do, right? And so we want to walk in obedience, and so we want to do good for them. I'm going to bring you a passage from Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. So it's a little bit of a long passage, but, but hang in, and you're going to see how this is just the hammer hitting the nail here for us about how we're supposed to interact with conflict. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. This is, pay attention to the wording on this in verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. My dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now hang with me for that part of the passage, because this is super interested, and you probably don't understand what that means yet. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now when we read, you'll heap burning coals on his head, we think of repayment, of burning, of hell, and that, that's really not what this passage is driving at. This passage is driving at, at, um, at refining. And our, when, when we experience pain, our, our natural thing is to want to cause pain back. But when, when God sees other people, he actually sees them much the way that you see your same, your, yourself. You, you make mistakes, but you understand, okay, but I am trying. Like, like there, there, there's reasons why I made those mistakes. And we don't always apply that same grace to other people, but God applies that grace equally. And so we don't need to repay evil for evil because just the way that we could explain our child's behavior or our own behavior, there's an explanation of what's happening behind the scenes with another person too. And so our actions are supposed to be something that helps reshape someone else. And so what, what the, the, the heaping of burning coals, as you study the context, how it was understood at the time, you read the commentaries, it makes it very clear that, that it was talking about this refining that happens with metal. And I found this small bit of poetry in band. If you guys will make your way up, I'm going to begin to close this thing out. And I, I don't bring a bunch of poetry up front, but I do enjoy things that are written well when I find them. And specifically to this passage in the commentaries, it had this small poem to help explain it. And it says, So artists melt the sullen ore of lead by heaping coals of fire upon its head. In the warmth, the metal learns to glow. And pure 
from dross, the silver runs below. Other people, conflict with other people, pain from other people. I want you to know that God sees that and he will handle settling things. But I'm so thankful that the justice that he has with him, within him that is perfect, the need for justice, the need for repayment, it was fulfilled by what Christ did on the cross for us. Our mistakes are many, and we know that. But God loved us so much that he sent his son so that whoever would believe would not perish but have eternal life. And that same grace that we need, the person who is on our last nerve, they need that too. And what they desperately need from you is a lifestyle that burns so bright with the love of Christ that it makes them want to change. That as they're around you more and more, they experience more and more of the love of God, where what is dross eventually gets burned away by God's love, and gold is revealed, silver is revealed, refining happens. And it often happens because of conflict. While we were still enemies of God, still sinners, just perfect time, God sent his son. And we have this opportunity as ambassadors of Christ to make this plea and give people the opportunity to receive the same grace. So church, when it comes to conflict, we should handle things differently, differently than the world. Other people should look on and say, it does not make sense. But in the kingdom of God, it makes sense for the forgiven to act that way. So if you are forgiven, may these scriptures guide the way that we treat other people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that in the case of justice and mercy, mercy has triumphed over justice. That your love won out. And that justice was fulfilled in the work of Christ. But because of grace, we have received the righteousness we could never earn. So Father, empower us by your spirit. Empower us by the encouragement of the other saints around us to navigate difficulty in a way that honors you. And as we sing, as we go through our week, we're going to honor you in the way that we do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?